We only have two more, two more classes before we wrap up with the Old Testament. I really underestimated, underestimated how much material we were going to be covering or overestimated my own ability to cover all of that in just 11 weeks. But um, we, are, we are getting very close to the end. In fact, next week's material won't even be over anything that is in Scripture. It's kind of the, the time between uh, the, the, what we call the intertestamental period. So we'll cover that next week, Lord willing. But um, So this is actually the last week of the biblical material, and then we'll get into the, the material that's sort of between the Testament. So let's go ahead and, and start with a prayer if we could. Father God, we thank you so very much for this day. Father, we thank you for the Scriptures Father, we pray that you help us to open our heart and our mind, uh, that we may see you for who you are, that we may see our place in your story and in your kingdom. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus, that we get to live in a time uh, after the cross and after the empty tomb. Father, that we get to be part of the new creation and understand uh, where all of this story was leading all along. Father, we thank you for your wisdom and your insight, for your forbearance, for your long-suffering, your steadfast love and your kindness, your mercy and your grace. We thank you, Father, that we get to be a part of that story. Father, thank you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, well, now that I have a clicker, uh, let's, let's go ahead and review very, very quickly. We're not even going to I won't even quiz you. I'm just going to assume by now you know all 11 of the, the points. Of all the points. Fantastic. So you're, 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 you've got the material. Okay, so I'm just going to put it up there. We're going to go through them really quick, and then we'll, be, uh, then we'll move on because we're, we've got a lot to cover tonight. So we talked about 11 different, 11 different periods of Israel's history. We talked about the fact that they were a chosen people. Abraham was chosen. His seed was chosen. We would have assumed that that meant all of his descendants. Paul clarifies that, that it really it is Jesus who is the seed, the one descendant of Abraham through whom the blessings of God are coming to the entire world. So chosen, liberated, the exodus from Egypt. Uh, we talked about the wandering in the wilderness for 40 years for an entire generation uh, to die off before they went into the land of Canaan try not to sneeze. Uh, and then they, uh, they conquered the land of Canaan, a period of victoriousness. Uh, but that, of course, uh, did not last very long because as soon as Joshua's generation died, uh, they, they went back to uh, being rebellious. And so we have this period of lawlessness, this lawless generation or several generations, probably the period of the judges. Uh, they would fall away. They would rebel against God. God would allow them to fall into the hands of their enemies because they were doing what was right in their own eyes. Their enemies would prevail against them, and then God would raise up a judge uh, to deliver them, to save them, because he loved his people, and he continued to bear with them in spite of their rebelliousness. So that, that period of lawlessness, and then the next period was they were ruled. They asked for a king. Uh, they got a king who ruled over them in a way that uh, they didn't like or appreciate, realized that they made a huge mistake because they had a king. Their king was God, and they rejected God's kingship in favor of a king like all the other nations. God mercifully gave them a king who was a man after his own heart, uh, who united the people of Israel. So we have this very short period of a united kingdom 
but then quickly thereafter, even during the reign of Solomon, but especially in the reign of his son Rehoboam, the kingdom was divided. Then we have this period of exile. Uh, the northern kingdom of Israel fell to Assyria, and then um, a short time later, 100 and something years later, uh, the southern kingdom of Judah fell to the Babylonians. Uh, Babylon fell to the Medes and the Persians. Um, eventually, we'll talk next week about the Greek period, but uh, during the period of the Medes and the Persians, the the Jewish people, the people from the southern kingdom of Judah, are allowed to go back home uh, from what was Babylon and go back to Jerusalem. And so we have this period of returned. We'll talk about that tonight. And then next week, this period of waiting for the Messiah. Okay, so remember last week, I want to review just a little bit last week's uh, lesson where we talked about the mountain range as a metaphor for prophecy and how when you see a mountain range from a distance, it's kind of two-dimensional, and it, it's all kind of flattened out, and you just look and you see a bunch of peaks, and you just kind of assume they're all part of the same thing, and that when you get to the mountain range, you get to all of it. And that's kind of the way that the prophecies sound when you view them from a distance. And so when you listen to the prophets, whether they were prophesying before the fall and the exile, or during the fall in the exile, or even as they returned and came back home. When you listen to the prophets, it sounds like, oh, there's this age of God's judgment, or this age of deliverance, or this age of whatever, and you think, oh, it's all part of the same thing. But then when you actually get into the fulfillment of that prophecy, you realize, like, like a mountain range, that one peak could be a hundred miles away from another peak. And they're in between, there are all kinds of valleys, and there may be other peaks in between those two peaks that you couldn't even see before. So when you, you don't understand exactly how it's all going to play out until you get right into the middle of it. But there's still a value, isn't there, in realizing this future is coming. And for us that are in Christ, there's a sense in which the words of the prophets, they have come true. They are presently coming true, and they will continue to come true. And so this future hope that the prophets were laying out for the people, that for them, it may have been a hundred years or a thousand years in the future. And for us, it may be, some of it may be in our past, some of it may be in our present, and some of it may be in our future, because Jesus is the fulfillment, ultimately the fulfillment of all of the hopes all of the promises that the prophets laid out for the people. Okay, so again, I think that metaphor, it's not my metaphor, but uh, I think that metaphor of the mountain range is helpful when it comes to thinking about the prophets. I want to lay out some important dates for this period of time that we're talking about. Um, 587 BC was about the time that Jerusalem was destroyed. What nation again destroyed uh, Jerusalem? Babylon, right? So, yeah, the Babylonians. So they destroyed Jerusalem. And again, I, I can't even, I, I, last week I compared it to like Washington, D.C. being destroyed because that's our capital city. Um, for Texans, maybe Austin. Um, I don't know if you'd feel that. I, I don't know how you'd feel about that, though. So anyway, I don't know what the emotional connection to Austin or Washington, D.C. would be. But, um, but not only the capital of their nation, that's part of it, but part of it is that this is the city that God picked and God chose and his name 
dwelt there. His presence dwelt there. His temple was there. This is where you would go every year. You would you'd make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate and to be in the presence of God. To be in the presence of God. And now his presence has departed from Jerusalem and the city is a heap of ashes and rubble. I can't even imagine what it would be like to experience that. So 587, uh, Jerusalem is destroyed. Of course, if you're not familiar with the way that the dating system works before Christ, we're counting down towards Jesus coming. So 587 BC, Jerusalem is destroyed. And then about 538 BC, the first wave of exiles return uh, with Zerubbabel. And so that's about 49 years after the destruction of Jerusalem. So there could be people, there were people that had seen Jerusalem prior to the destruction and then got to be part of at least the initial return uh, from, uh, from exile. Then the temple, right about this time, the, the foundation of the temple is laid. And so we'll talk about that a little bit tonight. The foundation of the temple is laid, but it takes quite a bit longer before the temple is actually finished. So the temple isn't finished being rebuilt until 516, which is right about the 70 years Jeremiah said that it was going to take uh, for the exile to, for the people to come back and for uh, the, the city to begin to be rebuilt. So about 70, 69, 70 years after the destruction, the temple is rebuilt, but it's not until 458 that the second, waves of, second wave of exiles return with Ezra, and that's 80 years after Zerubbabel. So 80 years after the foundation of the temple was laid, 80 years after the first wave comes, um, then the second wave comes. This is 129 years, you may have to check my math, but it's 129 years after Jerusalem is destroyed. And then it's not until 445 BC that the third wave of exiles return with Nehemiah to rebuild the walls, which is 142 years after the destruction of Jerusalem. So think about what we're going to talk quite a bit about Ezra and Nehemiah tonight, but think about things from Nehemiah's perspective, 142 years that the city has been in ruins with the exception of the temple and, you know, some houses and that kind of thing. But the city has essentially been in ruins for 142 years. That would be the equivalent, again, check my math, but 1881 until now. From 1881 until now. Can you imagine? I mean, think about, think about a city. And again, I, I think a lot about like post-apocalyptic type movies. I mean, imagine a city that, that you hold dear, that you think is, is beautiful and wonderful and is sentimental lying in ruins for 140 years. Or you living, not necessarily you living on the back end of that, but you living on the other end of that. And for all you've ever known, that city has been in ruins. For all your parents ever knew, that city was in ruins. For all your grandparents ever knew, that city was in ruins. And maybe even for all that your great-grandparents ever knew, that city was in ruins. Can you imagine? For 140 years, the walls of Jerusalem lay in, in ruins, in rubble. Okay, so let's look at Ezra chapter 3 and verse 10. Now, on the one hand, and I'll just kind of spoiler alert, let me just kind of tell you, tip my hand on what I think about Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah, 
like um, Samuel King's is, is one story. Ezra and Nehemiah is one, one book, one story. We've split it into two. It was two scrolls, and so we made it two books, but it's all one long story. And when I read Ezra and Nehemiah, I have mixed feelings. In fact, I think that's exactly how you should feel when you read Ezra and Nehemiah. I, I like the term bittersweet. It is, a, it is a story of tears and rejoicing. Every time we sort of have a moment of, yay, this is good, then there's this disappointing. I, I mean, it's almost like when I, when I thought through it the last time, I, I thought of it the, like a storm, like the sun kind of peeks through and, and you have a sunny day, kind of like today was one of those days. And then the next day, you know, like storm clouds roll through and then it's back to dreary and, and overcast. And that's the way the, book of, the story of Ezra and Nehemiah is. This period of return, because if you're, if you're just following along in the story and you're thinking, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the age of the Messiah. Maybe this is the age where David's kingship is restored. The house of David is back on the throne. The priesthood is back in business. The temple's back in business. Sacrifices are being made. Our sins are taken away. God's presence returns. Everything is awesome. Everything is wonderful. There's going to be an age of peace. People from all over the world are going to come to Jerusalem and say, tell us about your God. Your God is the one true and living God. We want to know about him. All the things that the prophet said were going to happen when the exile was over. You're thinking, okay, this is it. This is it. It's going to be awesome. And it's never that. In fact, it is, it is obviously not that. It's like the author is being explicit. This is not what you were hoping for. This is not what you were expecting. That's not to say there's nothing good here. But it is to say it's not, it's not what you were hoping for. And so, again, let me just kind of show you my cards. I, I, don't, I don't really like when we read Ezra and Nehemiah as like this like metaphor for how to do leadership or like how to be an entrepreneur or, you know, like how to build walls or, you know, whatever. I, I think that sometimes the way that we read these books really misses the point. Because when you actually read this story... You need to walk away going, oh man, that wasn't great. That wasn't great. If, if this was a movie, I was thinking about this all day today. I was thinking, if this was a movie, nobody would want to see it because it doesn't really have a happy ending. It doesn't have a happy ending. So just kind of keep that in mind as we read. Ezra chapter 3, verse 10. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord. So Zerubbabel brings uh, the first wave back. They lay the foundation of the temple. The priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the direct directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. I mean, again, that's kind of one of those yay moments, right? Yeah, I, this is awesome. Okay. I mean, this is it. The, the, the priesthood is back. The temple's going back up. We're back in the land. It's going to be flowing with milk and honey before you know it. This is all going to be great. It's all this, the bad exile period is going to be over. Verse 12. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, 
course, it's only been a little less than 50 years since the first temple was turned, torn down. The old men who had seen the first house wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout and the sound was heard far away. So again, I mean, it's almost that whole idea of this whole book of Ezra and Nehemiah, the bittersweet, the joy and the tears is captured in this one passage. They're shouting for joy, but there's also weeping. Because as the foundation of this temple is laid, they're looking at it thinking, it's not what it used to be. It's not what I remember. This isn't, this isn't what I was expecting. This isn't what it, what it was. This isn't what I was hoping for. Then as you keep reading, uh, the Samaritan people or the people in the land asked if they could join in rebuilding. Remember, there, there were people that were still in the land that were Israelites and then there were also people that were transplanted there from other nations. And so there was sort of this respect and worship for Yahweh and, and sort of kind of a keeping of a, a form of the law. And so when the exiles come back, some of the people there say, hey, we, we want to join in this thing. We want to be part of this thing. And they said, absolutely not. You can't be part of this thing. They were told no. Um, and so those people, the people of the land, wrote a letter to the Persian king to say, hey, they're rebuilding this Jerusalem city and you check your records, this Jerusalem city tends to be pretty rebellious and they kind of do their own thing. So you probably want to stop them from rebuilding this temple. And of course the king does, he stops them from rebuilding the temple. And so the temple sat half finished or just a foundation really for 18 years. So again, get back. Things are great. Going to get a temple again. It's going to be awesome. And then 18 years go by, nothing. They just allow the opposition to stop them from doing what they're supposed to do. Then Haggai and Zechariah, so if you read the books of Haggai and Zechariah, they come along and they start prophesying to the people, telling them, okay, time to get your act together. Time to do what you're supposed to do. Haggai, of course, tells them, you had plenty of time to build your houses. You're living in your paneled houses. You live in nice, fancy houses. And meanwhile, the temple of the Lord is, is in ruins and you haven't rebuilt that. So it's time to get busy doing that. So Finally, the temple is, is completed. Um, and, and throughout all of this story, over and over again, one of the themes, if you just sat down and read Ezra and Nehemiah, you would find that the, probably the idea that is repeated most often is that the hand of the Lord was with them. The hand of the Lord was with them. When they did what they were supposed to do, this is everything we've been talking about since the beginning of this class, isn't it? When they walked by faith, when they did what they were supposed to do, the hand of the Lord was with them. It's especially in the sense that he gave them favor with the pagan rulers. And again, that reminds us of Joseph, right? It reminds us of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. And, and we see that throughout Ezra and Nehemiah. We see that when they walk by faith, God gives them favor with the pagan kings and um, they're, they're able to do what they're supposed to do. So we kind of get to this point in the story and we say, yay, question mark, you know, is, is, this, is this it? Like, exile's over, right? I, I always think about like a kid in their room saying, can I come out now? You know, am I, am I ungrounded now? Is, is it over now? Are, are, you, are you not mad at me anymore? And you kind of get to this point in the story and you're like, okay, temple's rebuilt. People are back in Jerusalem. Is it all over now? 
50 years go by. So again, if you're watching a movie, you know, the, 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 the scene fades to black and you see a text on the screen 50 years later. Then a guy named Ezra shows up. Ezra is a scribe, so he's an expert in the law. Um, he, he knows the law. He's skilled in the law of Moses. Uh, chapter 7 and verse 10 um, Chapter 7 and verse 10, For Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So Ezra is the preacher man. I mean, he is going to tell everybody this is the way we're going to live. And maybe every time a leader comes along, Zerubbabel, let's build the temple, or uh, the prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, or um, Ezra comes along, preaches the law. Every time a new leader kind of comes onto the scene and brings a new thing back, let's get, let's get the priesthood back, let's get the temple back, let's get the word of God, the law of Moses, let's get that back, let's start doing what we're supposed to do. You kind of think, maybe this is it. Maybe this is going to turn the tide. Maybe this, maybe once they start keeping the Passover, maybe that'll do it. Once they get a temple, that'll do it. Once they start, oh, they weren't really following the law of Moses. Once they start following the law, that'll do it. That God will stop being mad at them then. Then their sins will be gone. Exile will be over. And every time you just keep hoping and waiting, and you think, surely this is going to do it. Surely, surely this will turn things around for them. Look at verse 27. Uh, so Ezra comes back to Jerusalem and, and he's able to bring funds. Again, God gives all of these leaders favor with the pagan rulers. So he comes back from, from the Medo-Persian king with all of these uh, blessings to be able to beautify the temple. It says in verse 27, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. So throughout this text, again, this is one reason I say, eh, when we make this about like good leadership principles, it kind of ignores exactly what the text says that the story is about. The story isn't about, oh, these are savvy business leaders. These are, these are guys that know how to win friends and influence people. No, these are, these are people that God gave them favor with the rulers. It isn't good luck. It isn't, it isn't good fortune. It isn't good negotiating skills. It's the fact that God is with them and God is blessing them inexplicably, by the way, because what pagan kings like give people, give their slaves, these exiled people, not only say, hey, sure, go back home if you want to. Yeah, absolutely. Go back home. But I'll give you money and I'll give you gold and I'll give you wood and I'll give you silver so that you can beautify the house of your God that the people before me destroyed his temple. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Go do that. Cyrus does that, you know, all of these different kings do that, not because these leaders have great skills, but because the Lord is with them. Chapter 9. Now, um, when, the, when Ezra gets to the land, of course, let me go back for just a second. Of course, Ezra, he's been reading the law of Moses. He, he's an expert in the law of Moses. 
He knows what God told them to do the first time they went into the land of Israel. And one of the things that he told them not to do was don't intermarry with the people of other nations. Don't do that. The people there are corrupt. You need to drive them out. Don't intermarry with them. So I think Ezra has this like idealistic vision in his head. He's like, okay, this is Deuteronomy 2.0. I mean, Deuteronomy was already the law 2.0, but this is, so I don't know what that would be. But, you know, he, he says, I, I, we're going to go back and, and we're going to do it the way we were supposed to do it the first time, right? We're going to do it the way we were supposed to do it the first time. And he gets there, and guess what? People have already blown it. He didn't even get a chance. It's already over before he started. They've already married people of other nations. And some of them even have kids with them. And he's like, ah, now what? Now what? It's hopeless. You, you ruined it. This is why we can't have nice things, people. Why did you do this? Why did you mess it up before we even got started? And so he, he prays to God. He's incredibly desperate. And he says, oh my God, I, ha- I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you. My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity, to plundering and to utter shame as it is today. Okay, so... Again, we're talking decades and decades, not just since the fall of Jerusalem, but since they came back. It's been, what, 68 years or something like that? Since they started coming back. And and Ezra is just like, we have been in utter shame since longer than any of us can remember. We've been, we've been nothing because of our sins. But now, he says, verse 8, but now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and, listen, grant us a little reviving in our slavery. Make no mistake about it. These are not free people. These are not free. They have not experienced another exodus. They have not been liberated. The the Medes and the Persians still have them under their thumb. They still understand full well, we are subject to a foreign king. We are slaves to him. And so he says, we've had this moment of sunlight on our faces in the midst of this horrible slavery we've been enduring for generations now, we've had this brief moment of reviving in our slavery, for we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery. Like, man, underline those. If you underline, highlight those. This is what Ezra Nehemiah is all about. We're still slaves, but God has not given up on us. We're still slaves, but God has not given up on us. We have not been delivered yet. We have not been liberated yet. We have not experienced the blessings that the prophets told us were coming, but God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia 
to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, here's what you were told, here's what God told us when we went in, so he's praying this back to God, the land that you're entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from one end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever and after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this. So stop right there. He's saying, you told us not to do all this stuff and we did it anyway. And you punished us, but not nearly as much as you, you probably should have punished us. We deserved far worse than we got. And that's pretty amazing, isn't it? We've been slaves for generations now, but we should just have been wiped out. And you didn't wipe us out because you're a merciful God. And now what? Now shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples and practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant? nor any to escape. O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. And so he prays to God. He rebukes the people for intermarrying with Gentile people, forsaking God. They're breaking the commandments. He's angry. He's upset. The people repent. Some of them even put their foreign wives away. And that's it. That's how it ends. That's how the first part ends. Again, fade to black, end of part one, intermission. That's it. You messed up again. Why do you keep doing this, people? And that's how it ends. Without any sort of glimmer of hope, it just kind of ends there. And then, and then we go on to the next part two of the story, Nehemiah. So a few years later, Nehemiah comes on the scene. Now, just to kind of get in your head again, Nehemiah comes on the scene about 70 years after the temple has been rebuilt. So essentially, it's been two periods of 70 years, right? There's been 70 years from the time the temple was destroyed to the time it was rebuilt, and another 70 years from the time it was rebuilt until Nehemiah comes along. Over 140 years. Again, thinking back in our timeline, that would be 1881. Like, that seems like ancient history to us, right? So this is, this is the world in which Nehemiah has lived. But ironically, for the last 70 years, and again, that's a long period of time, for Nehemiah's entire life, there have been exiles living back in Jerusalem. The temple has been rebuilt. Like, that's before his lifetime. And so... He, he's, living, he's living in a foreign country as an exile, probably never been, I'm sure he's never been to Jerusalem. And so when he hears the report, hey, what's, what's it like in Jerusalem now? What's it like there? And he hears the report, it's a trash heap. 
the walls are still destroyed. It's nothing. It's laughable. People that walk by it know what a shameful group of people used to live here. It's nothing. It's trash. It is in ruins. And here's what it says in chapter 1 and verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. Now, Nehemiah is not the first person to pray this kind of collective repentant prayer, repenting on behalf of the people, saying, forgive us of our collective sins. He's not just talking about his own personal sins. It's not really his sins that got them in this shape. It's their sins collectively. And you keep thinking, again, maybe the temple, maybe the priest coming back, maybe the sacrifices coming back, maybe the Passover coming back, maybe the Feast of Booths coming back, maybe all of these things coming back, maybe Ezra preaching to the people, maybe that is going to take away the wrath of God and this period of refreshing and renewal is going to come. And then, then we get a new guy on the scene. We get this new leader and he's praying and he's weeping and you're like, yes, yes, godly Nehemiah. It's breaking his heart that they're, that, Jerusalem is still in shambles and he's praying and he's repenting and he's asking for God's mercy and forgiveness. He says in verse 7, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven. From there, I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. And you're like, okay, part two is so much better so far, right? I mean, this Nehemiah guy, he's got it going on. He's reminding God all your promises. He's reminding God, okay, you said you were going to bring us all back. You were going to make your name dwell there. It's going to be renewal time. It's going to be liberation time. And so Nehemiah uh, continues to pray. He says, verse 10, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed. He's talking about all the scattered people that you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, the king, because he's about to go talk to the king. Now I was cupbearer to the king. So again, throughout this whole thing, we see two realities. One, exile hasn't ended. Two, God hasn't abandoned them. God is still with them. God is still granting them favor. God is still has his hand upon them. And so when Nehemiah goes and talks to the king, do you think that God grants him success? Yeah, that's the, that's the theme that's been going through this whole story so far. So Nehemiah goes before the king. Of course, he's serving him as the cupbearer. And it says, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, 
Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. Now, why would, why would you be afraid? If you were the cupbearer to the king, do you suppose kings like that want sad people in their presence? No, they probably don't. And they probably would kill you for that, such a thing. Because if you're in my presence, I want you to make me happy. And if you don't make me happy, off with your head. And so Nehemiah is terrified because... The king has recognized that he's sad. He's not sick. He's just sad. And he had the audacity to come into his presence being sad. But does he say off with your head? No. He grants him favor. Why? Because God is with his people. Verse 3. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad? Whew, the audacity of this. I mean, it's just amazing. I love it. Why should not, why should not my face be sad when the city... The place of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given, to, given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. Again, I mean... I don't think it's a stretch to say miraculous. God is granting it. This is no less miraculous than Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego coming out of the fiery furnace or uh, Daniel coming out of the lion's den. He is right in the lion's den and the lion says, hey, let me give you wood. Let me give you, let me give you all of these blessings. And he's like, okay, thank you. Don't mind if I do. And he, you know, he, he takes all of these things because God's hand is upon him. Chapter four. Um, of course, same types of things happen. They get back, they get to Jerusalem, they start building. Again, same themes that we saw with the building of the temple. As soon as they laid the foundation, as soon as they started building the temple, they were opposed by the people of the land, the Samaritan people. And then, um, and then they kind of stopped the work. In this case, they start the walls, rebuilding the walls. Nehemiah gathers the people together, rallies them, gets them excited. They start building the walls, and then the people um, begin to, to mock them, to oppose them, and to try to stop them from building the walls. Chapter 4, when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. The, the people were, of course, kind of mooching off of, taking advantage of, oppressing um, the people of Jerusalem, because there's, again, there's no walls. And I mean, there's really very few equivalents to that today because our cities don't have walls around them, but your houses do, right? And can you imagine, I mean, imagine what, hap what happens in a city, what happens in a city when there's a hurricane or a, a natural disaster and when walls start coming down, when there's a bunch of stores with walls and, and windows out, they get looted, right? I mean, when there's no protection, you get looted. If your walls, if suddenly there was a big hole in your wall and it was like that for a day or a week or a month or decades, people would just come in and take what they wanted. If there was anything nice in there, it'd be gone after a while, right? And so that's what's been happening to Jerusalem forever. As long as any of these people can remember. 
this has just been people you take advantage of because th there's no protection. There's no wall around there. And so, of course, when they start building the wall, the people that have been taking advantage of them um, are furious. And he said in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria, where, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish it up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, yes, what they're building. If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O oh our God, for this is the people praying. Hear, O oh our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked your anger in the presence of the builders. So unlike when they were building the temple, when they're opposed by the people of the land in the building of the wall, they keep going. They're tenacious. They pray to God. They say, punish them for that. And we're going to keep going. So we built the wall and the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. So, I mean, again, as soon as we kind of see a little bit of sunlight, we're like, hey, good story. I'm liking it. This Nehemiah guy, that everything is going great. This is time of restoration. People of Jerusalem, they're getting on board. They're doing what's right. Almost as soon as we start to congratulate them for being so awesome, then they realize, oh, wait, the rich people are, the rich Jewish people are oppressing the poor Jewish people. They're taking advantage of their own brothers. They're, they're loaning them money at interest and they're making them into indentured servants. Are you kidding me, guys? They out there are make a, making us slaves and then you're making each other slaves on top of that? You ought to be ashamed of yourself. So as soon as something good happens, of course, something bad happens. Um, then the wall is finished and just... It's kind of, again, bittersweet. The wall is finished in 52 days. And I want to say, I mean, it took you 70 years to do something you could do in 52 days? And so, yay, the wall is built. About time. About time. Why, why did it take so long? Um, then Ezra preaches from the law. So now we kind of got a, a combo between Nehemiah and Ezra. We've got Nehemiah making all of these legal reformations and we've got Ezra preaching from the, from the law. Man, this is it, right? This is it. This is where everything starts going in the right direction. The people recommit themselves to faithfulness and obedience. They confess their sins. Um, look at chapter nine, confession of sins. Chapter nine, verse 32. Now, therefore, our God, the great the mighty and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. So they go all the way back to the Assyrian captivity. That's been 277 years. 277 years since all of this started happening. And, and you kind of are like, is, is this it? Like, this is the turning point, right? The walls are finally <laughs> rebuilt. The people are rededicating themselves to God. It's been 277 years since all of this punishment started. And again, like a little kid that's been in their room for 200 years, can, can I come out now? Are, are, you, are you not, are you not uh, mad at me anymore? Yet you have been righteous, speaking to God, yet you have been righteous, 
in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are, there's that word again, we are slaves this day. In the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. It's pretty clear. The exile still isn't over. We're home. We have a temple. We have a wall. We're offering sacrifices. We have the law of Moses. People are beginning to recommit their life, but the exile still isn't over. None of this has taken away our sin. None of this has restored us. None of this has brought the presence of God back to us. None of this has put us back into the place and the position and the relationship that we want to have. And then as if, as if it couldn't end on a bad note, it does. And the people start working on the Sabbath. Nehemiah has to correct that and stop that. And then we go back to the idea of them marrying Gentile women. And he says in chapter 13, it's just awful. I hate that it ends this way. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Ezra pulled out his own hair. Nehemiah pulled out other people's hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made, him, made even him to sin. Shall we listen to you and do this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? Pretty soon after that, the book ends. That's it. So again, I just don't think we ought to read Ezra and Nehemiah victoriously. And it's not, it's not, I don't think that Ezra and Nehemiah did everything right. I don't think cursing them, beating them, and pulling out their hair. I don't think that was a great decision, but I could be wrong. But I don't think that the failure of Ezra and Nehemiah's story is about failed leadership as much as it is a burden that was too big for anyone to bear. So we could end it this way. Even the best leaders could not change their stubborn hearts, remove their collective sin, or end their exile. We need someone greater. We need somebody bigger. We need somebody better. Better than Ezra, better than Nehemiah, better than Haggai, better than Zechariah, better than the Zerubbabel. We need someone greater. The good news is someone greater is coming. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this story. Father, for reminding us how stubborn we can be, for reminding us just how heavy of a burden our sin is, for reminding us just how rebellious we've been and what a great act of grace it was that you have sent your son to take away not only the sins of Israel, but the sins of the world.
And Father, we pray that you help us to live in gratitude for that gift. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.